morning. Hope you're doing okay. This is the second go. I haven't ever spoken before. We have to do it twice. So I'm hoping the pay will be double at the end of the second one. But we'll see. I <laughs> um, just want to thank you for all your prayers that have gone on for the teams around in Zambia and Bulgaria. 45 people from this church are away on mission at the moment, which is just, that's really amazing, isn't it? 45. And um, last night I was setting my alarm on my mobile phone. I noticed I had three texts from Bulgaria. One was from Leon saying he was praying for me this morning, so that's good. And I had two from my girls who were both in Bulgaria. And one said, Mom, they were both encouraging me about this morning. And one said, Mom, you'll be fine because you really are a cool dude. (laughs) So we're okay because Leon's praying and I'm a cool dude. It'll be good. Um, For those of you who don't know, I work for the church and have done for quite a few years. And for about the last five or six years... Part of my job has been organising the mission trips that we've sent abroad. And I have sent many of you abroad many times, some of you several times, um, to India and Africa and Southeast Asia and all sorts of other places. I don't think we've ever done South America yet, but maybe one day. But I've never been, I've never been myself. And I nearly went to India about three years ago, but kind of bottled out some reason and I'd never been and last year I thought no I need to go myself I need to go on a mission trip so I decided to join the trip that was going out to Albania last September so how do you prepare for something like that a lot of you will have already done it and I decided my attitude was going to be that whatever happened was good I was going to just cope with it didn't wasn't going to be like England I was just going to expect whatever happened to happen and just go with the flow. So uh, we flew off to Tirana, landed in the airport. I have to say, I think all the money spent on buildings in Albania was being spent on the airport because that was a really nice building. The rest of it was not quite so good. But we we got off the plane and uh, we met two of the guys from the church and they got two minibuses ready to take us down to the coast where we were staying. And got into the minibus, and the first thing that you do when you get into a minibus or a car is you put on your seatbelt. Oh, there aren't any seatbelts. Okay, that's fine. You know, it's a mission trip. It's not going to be like the UK. We're, we're cool with that. So we drive off, and the guy driving is uh, an Albanian guy, and he's obviously very used to the roads. And we seem to get to this one point where it was kind of blocked on the right-hand side, so we were staying there for a bit. And then suddenly he went down the gears and off he shot into the left-hand lane, shot all the way down the side. I thought, oh, that's fine, the right's blocked, so we just go on the left, no problem. And I noticed very quickly that in Albania, it seems to be not like here where you get to the end of a road and you look, see what's coming, and then you, you just pull out, you just go for it, you pull out, and you just hope nobody hits you. And one, one other trip we went out on, uh, again, there was a hold up on the right, so cars start going down the left-hand side, and then one guy as the left got blocked saw his opportunity because the pavement was clear. And off he drove right down the pavement. And I'm thinking, are there no rules in this country? Do rules not exist in Albania? Don't seem to. And I wonder what your thoughts are when I mention the word rules. Some of you might be a bit like me, got a bit of an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And rules are there to be obeyed. 
And if you're like that, if you're going to an event and it starts at 7.30, you will be there for quarter past, making sure you're not going to be late, whatever happens. And you probably won't ever break the speed limit, intentionally anyway. And you will want to know where the boundaries lie. You'll want to know what the rules are. You'll go into a new situation. You want to know how to stay, you know, that middle line. Others of you might be the other extreme where if there's a rule there, it's there to be broken. And if you go to an event that starts at half seven, you leave home at half seven to make sure you're just a little bit fashionably late. For you, the turning off of the speed cameras with all the cuts that are happening is a God, an act of God, and you are really, really grateful. Some of you will be, of course, somewhere in between those two extremes. When our children were small, we had to decide what rules we were going to have in our house. Do we have lots? Do we have a few? Which ones are really important? Which ones are we going to say, those are the rules and that's it? And where else are we going to be perhaps a little bit more lax? And there's a challenge in that as a couple to make sure that both of you are on the same page. Both of you are holding the same rules because kids will find and play off any inconsistencies between the two of you. So in our house, we decided to try and stick more or less to one main rule. And I'm hoping if you ask any of my children, even now, they're a bit older, if, the, if what is the juice and family rule, I'm hoping they will tell you the rule is be kind to one another. Because we figured out if everyone's being kind to one another, we shouldn't go too far wrong. More or less, we'll have it all covered. Except for what time you get in at night. That's a different one. So what does the Bible say about rules? Quite often if you speak to someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, doesn't really know the Bible, they'll tell you it's full of rules. It's all about thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that and it's all full of rules. Near the beginning of the Old Testament, because of course that isn't actually true, God gave ten rules to the Jews, which we call the Ten Commandments. But then in the New Testament, when Jesus came along, he was asked, which are the most important rules? And he named two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, Jesus said in Mark 12. As Jesus realized an important principle, if you have perfect love, you don't need rules. Because if you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, you're not going to put any other gods in front of him. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're, you're going to take time out to honour him and to spend time with him. And if you're loving your neighbour, which isn't just your next door neighbour, it's anyone you come into contact, if you're loving them really deeply as yourself, you're not going to murder or steal or cheat or lie or commit adultery. It's all amazingly covered by those two laws of love. And I want to introduce you today as we rewind two people who met Jesus. And one of them we could call the rule maker and the other a rule breaker. And the story is in Luke 7 from verse 36. If you want to follow it, you don't have to, I'll read it. It says this, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
When a woman who had lived a sinful life in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him said this, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet from the time I entered. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who's this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we've got Simon, the rule maker, the Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a Jewish sect. They didn't exist in the Old Testament. They came into being in the 400-year gap that exists between the Old Testament and the New. And the Jews believed they were God's chosen people. Israel was the land that Yahweh had given them, and Yahweh had also given them rules to live by. But despite being God's chosen people, things had not gone very well for the Jews. They'd not fully claimed the promised land that they'd been given and things had gradually disintegrated to a point where the land was divided and some of the people were living in exile. The whole area was under the influence of the Greeks and this was not good because their culture was not one that was conducive to the Jewish way of life. You could say it was all a bit of a mess. And at the end of the book of Malachi, God promises to send someone. We know this someone is John the Baptist looking back. And this person was going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And the Jews assumed that the Messiah was going to be a political leader who was going to come and sort it all out. So after these verses, right at the end of Malachi, God falls silent for 400 years. We recently, a few months ago, celebrated the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, which came into being in 1611. Does anyone remember 1611? No? Of course you don't. And it's like the Bible being printed and then nothing more said or printed to this day. And at first, the stories get passed on, stories of Israelite history, the conquest, the prophets... But soon they become not stories that your parents tell you, but stories that your grandparents tell you, and then your great-grandparents, and so on. It's, it's a bit like, I remember when I was a child, my nan used to talk incessantly about the Second World War. 
In fact, she didn't really ever talk about anything else other than the Second World War. It had had such a major impact on her life. My mum just about remembers when sweet rationing was ended, which was just after, I think, the end of the Second World War, which just shows you she was a child when the Second World War was going on. In fact, she was born just towards the end. Of course, I have no memories or experience of anything like that. And my children, you know, it just becomes stories of stories of stories. 400 years. How do you cope with 400 years of silence during which time your land is divided and occupied? Basically, you've got two options. You either go with the flow, accept the changing culture, swim with the tide. That's what the majority of the Jews did. And that would probably happen naturally, wouldn't it? Over 400 years, small changes. Or you separate yourself and continue to try and live in the way you believe God wants. And that's how the Pharisee sect kind of came to be. They devoted themselves to the complete and total following of the rules. They believed in the Torah, the law. They also believed, though, that the rabbis, as they interpreted the law, their interpretation held equal weight with the law itself. That's a little bit like we say that the Bible is God's inspired word, but also everything that Leon and Dan say about the Bible, we also believe is equally weighty and inspired by... No, we don't, you know. Yeah, they're very good, but they're not that good, you know. But they believed that it was all, it was all God. And so what had begun as the Ten Commandments, gradually over a period of time, had got multiplied into something else completely. Rules had been explained and expounded and enhanced. And we ended up with some pretty strange rules. And I'm going to tell you about three of them because they're quite funny. The first one is you weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath. Now, I actually think that's not a bad rule. I think that rule should be actually all week, not just the Sabbath. But it wasn't because there was some kind of hygiene thing around spitting. Sorry, this is such a nasty subject to talk about. It was because the spit, sorry, would land in the dust and the dust would kind of fly up and form a little sort of like a plough. And ploughing was work and work wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. So you weren't allowed to spit in case you ploughed up the earth and that was work. What? And one for the women. Women, you were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. This was because you might wander past the mirror and go, oh, there's a grey hair there, you know, and pull it out. And plucking a hair out was work, and you weren't allowed to do work. So to make sure the women couldn't possibly be tempted to work on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to look in the mirror. And then another one that I think is really bizarre, but actually when I thought about it, realised I have done something similar to this. It's quite worrying. Some bright spark had obviously decided, you see, you weren't allowed to carry your clothing on the Sabbath because that was work. So some bright spark had said, what happens if I wake up in the middle of the night and my house is burning down and I'm going to leave the house, all my clothes are going to get burnt to a cinder. I don't want that to happen. Can I pick them up in that circumstance, carry them out of the house? So they obviously thought about it. Came out, no, you can't do that. It's work. How many of you have ever packed your suitcase to go on holiday and you've really struggled to get under the weight limit? 
We had this last Saturday morning when my daughters were preparing for Bulgaria. Five minutes before we were due to be here, we're still weighing our suitcase and taking out body lotion and body butter and all sorts of other things that were really essential, but we're taking the case just that little bit overweight. And finally just about got it under. I have to say, I think Ryan Bridgewater's was the heaviest, but we won't go there. But you know, you've, you've packed your case and you go on holiday and you're just a snitch under the weight limit and then you go shopping while you're there. And then when you come to come home, what was just under weight on the way out, it hasn't got a chance. So you have a bright idea. That's okay. I can wear extra clothes. Yeah? Now at the nine o'clock, some people agreed they'd done that. But you're all looking a bit at me like you must be mad. But I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have done that at times. So they decided with this rule, you know, remember the guy's in his bedroom, the house is burning down, he wants to get rid of his clothes, doesn't want to lose them. You wear them. You stand there in the burning building and you put on all your clothes really quickly so that you can run out of the house and you've saved all your clothes and you haven't broken the rule of the Sabbath. Ridiculous to be honest. But what happened, this Pharisee sect evolved evolved into a group of people who genuinely believed they were special because they followed the rules. And we know that they believed that because in Luke 18, there's another story where there's two guys praying and one's a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing there really proud and tall and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer. And then you've got the tax collector standing afar off who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. And it seems to me, though, that the Pharisees started off with good intentions, started off really wanting to get it right, but they were about a degree off course. And over 400 years, one degree deviation takes you a long way. So Simon the Pharisee was part of this group. He'd grown up in that culture. This was his worldview and he believed he was right. And where Simon lived, things were happening. There was a guy around called Jesus. And recently he'd caused a stir because he'd visited a town called Nain, walked over to a funeral procession and raised the dead boy from the dead. That obviously had caused quite a lot of rumour. People were saying it's a prophet, you know. Is this the one? Is this the Messiah we've all been waiting for? John the Baptist was already on the scene and he'd sent two of his disciples to see Jesus to ask whether he was the Christ or if they should look for someone else. They were convinced Jesus was the one, but the Pharisees hadn't accepted John the Baptist. So they also had a problem accepting Jesus. So here was a really big opportunity for Simon After all of these years of silence, maybe the longed-for Messiah was on the scene. And Simon had the opportunity to meet him and see for himself. So Simon, the rule maker, invites Jesus over to his house for a meal. And right then, the rule breaker turns up. She has no other name in the Bible than the woman who had lived a sinful life. In other words, a prostitute. And women in that culture were kind of on a par with slaves. So a woman in itself was bad enough, but a woman of ill repute. You could just imagine the horror of the scene in a modern-day dinner party. You've got important guests. It's all set out and ready. And suddenly someone like that turns up. 
But actually, it was quite normal in this culture for people to just kind of come and go and wander in and out. So Simon wasn't so concerned about the woman's arrival. And after all, this was a test for Jesus. If he was a prophet, really, truly, he would know who she was. And he would know what she'd done. And he'd be able to deal with her accordingly. You almost wonder if it was a bit of a setup. Because Simon's attitude to Jesus seemed to be one of contempt. For someone so concerned with obeying the rules, he broke all the rules, the cultural rules of hospitality. Because in those days, you had to give someone water to wash their feet. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil. He really quite snubbed him. So let's think about the woman. What had happened to this woman to turn her into someone who had no choice but to sell her own body? What would you have thought of her if you'd met her? What would your reaction have been? It's really easy, isn't it, to be judgmental about people that we meet and people that we don't meet, to be honest. And you've probably heard a lot on the news in the last week about the death of Amy Winehouse. And I heard a comment on the radio and it really kind of upset me because this person said, why is there so much fuss and bother about her? She was just a drug addict. And I thought, oh, that doesn't, you know. And then on the news, I saw pictures of her mother and father and they went to Camden to where her house was and they were looking at all the flowers and the tributes. And they were obviously really distraught. And I thought to myself, just a drug addict or someone's beloved daughter? The Bible says, you formed me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Does that just apply to Christians? Does that just apply to God's special people? Or did that apply to Amy Winehouse and others? And whatever you think about her, she had a real talent and an amazing voice. And that was God-given. And it's the culture and the world that she lived in that messed her up and cost her a death. We're not told much about the woman in the story with the perfume jar. But whoever or whatever she was, she'd obviously already either met Jesus or come into contact with him and recognised something about him that Simon had missed. She was aware of a rule that ran deeper and that was the law of love. She was obviously desperate to meet him but she stood behind him at first, maybe trying to go unnoticed. Then the tears came and the more they flowed, the more difficult it became to stop. Maybe years of pent-up emotion, grief and hurt poured out. And the more emotion that came out, the less she was aware of her surroundings, the more deeply her focus fixed on Jesus. She had no concern for status. Foot washing was a necessary thing because of the dusty roads. And the job was reserved for the most menial servant. She was quite happy to be the lowest of the low. When she dried his feet with her hair, she took some really big risks. Because in that culture, in our culture, there are certain parts of a woman's body, let's be honest, that you, you cover up. Yeah. In their culture, the hair was to be covered. It was considered wrong for women to have their hair on show. So to actually get her hair out was a big kind of cultural, you know, taboo. The other thing was, one of the punishments for prostitution was to have your hair shaved off. So she was taking a really big risk by doing that. Then came the perfume in the alabaster jar. It's odd, isn't it, that in letting go in love for Jesus, 
The lady with the perfume actually obeyed all the cultural hospitality rules Simon had forgotten. The foot washing, the kiss, the anointing, the law of love made sure it was all covered. And I have gone to great expense this week, not even in the pound shop. This was the 99 pence shop. Paradise Island. I've done this once at the nine and Simon and Dan will vouch this is no Paradise Island. You know, when we have perfume with this little spray top, I couldn't find it, the nine can't find it again. You know, we're a little bit sparing, aren't we? I'm not going to spray it on myself because I had one to practice within the week and I sprayed it on myself and I went very pink and itchy. <laughs> so, you know, we just kind of, oh, there we go, it does work. We just spray a little bit, don't we? We keep special occasion or we, you know, more for tomorrow. We just spray this a little bit and we're very kind of reserved about it. But the alabaster jar would not have had a little spray top like this. In order to release the perfume, you had to break the jar. So that's what we're going to do. The jiffy bag, right, it looks a bit like a magic trick. This is not a magic trick. There are no trap doors. You do not have to examine the jiffy bag. It was just added as a health and safety necessity. I'm going to point it in the opposite direction because Simon did nearly sneeze at the nine o'clock. Okay. Ooh, this one's a bit tougher than the others. <laughs> no, it really is. How odd. We've practiced this. And I did it at the nine. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just going to put the mic down for a second. I hope you can see that was a full commitment. That perfume is not going back in that jar. Even Joe Ridgely could not make that perfume go back in that jar, I promise you. It's a full commitment. This lady who broke the jar, it was all or nothing. She was going to smell like Jesus for the rest of the day and he was going to smell like her. Washing the feet in water was considered the minimum act, but this lady went to the maximum. And there seems to be a principle here of not holding back. How often do we do that in life? We're sparing with ourselves, our time, our finances, our affections. We don't want to fully commit because we feel secure knowing that we've held something back for ourselves, something in reserve for a rainy day. Sometimes the fear of getting hurt by someone means we just can't quite fully commit ourselves. We just don't want to quite take the risk. I want to just rewind a little bit further back into the Old Testament, and there's a story in 1 Kings where we read about the widow of Zarephath. And this widow lives in a land which is in drought. We've seen a lot of photographs on the television about land that's in drought. And Elijah is there and he needs to be fed. And God tells Elijah, don't worry, I've commanded the widow of Zarephath to feed you. Now whether God had actually knocked on her door and go, there's a guy called Elijah and he's coming over and you've got to feed him, I don't know. But Elijah meets the widow and the first thing he does, he asks for water. 
And she's quite happy. She toddles off to go and get the water for him. Things are fine because she's obviously got access to some water and she's quite happy to go and serve the prophet. But then he ups the ante and says, I want some bread. Now, this is a challenge now because the woman only has enough oil and flour to make one last meal for her and her son and then they're going to die of starvation. So she says no. Try and imagine her position, which would be difficult, but you can understand her refusal. She's putting her family first. She genuinely believes, I can't help. I'm sorry, I've only got, you know. But the prophet challenges her, promising her that if she makes some food first for him, the oil and flour won't run out until the drought is over. So what would you do? Would you trust the prophet or hang on to the small thing? for one last meal. We know that the widow did as Elijah said, risked the small thing for the promise of life and the oil and flour did not run out. And there is a principle here, a rule of sort of blessing and enlargement that happens when we let go, when we give it everything, when we smash the jar, when we don't worry about what we've got left, whether it's money, possessions, time, emotion, affection or love. When we put ourselves out there and take the risk, And get to the end of ourselves. God can step in and do something amazing. So back to the woman with the perfume. Jesus could really have, you know, torn her off a strip. You know, she'd had her hair out. She'd cried all over him. You know, she'd done all these acts of prostitution. But he totally affirms her. And he comes up with his parable about two debtors. One who owes a small amount and one who owes a large amount. Now, obviously, the one who owed a small amount was meant to represent Simon the Pharisee. And the one who owned a big amount represented the woman. Simon wouldn't have believed he had a debt. He was the rule keeper, the rule maker. He didn't have a debt. The woman has the debt. But Jesus says, no. You know, you both have a debt. And yes, yours might be bigger than yours or whatever. But you know what? Neither of you can pay. You both have it. And what he says to Simon as well is, you know what, Simon? Small debt, small amount of forgiveness required to sort it out. Small love and gratitude. And then turning to the woman, he's saying, you know what? Big, huge debt. Big amount of forgiveness required. Big amount of love And gratitude. So I want us just to think about three questions as I'm kind of drawing this to a close. The first one is this. Do you obey all the rules? Or do you truly, really, deeply love Jesus? Do people recognize you because of your your faith, you know? By your love or because you stick to the rules is another way of putting it. Do they see your love or do they see someone who goes to church and who doesn't swear and da da da, you know? Or do they see your love? And are you prepared to give yourself sacrificially to him? Not worry about what you're holding back, not worry about tomorrow, but just let it all out there for him. A few weeks ago, I was mulling some of this over as it was developing in my head and I was uh, in the gym and I got my iPod on I really don't understand how people preach on a weekly basis because it really does take weeks and weeks and weeks for all this to come together. But I was listening to my iPod and a song came on my iPod which we're going to sing to close. 
And it seemed to sum it all up. And it also reminded me of one more important thing. Whatever we do, however we give, we'll never ever outgive God. Obeying the rules, if you just obey the rules, you'll be left feeling shortchanged and empty. But even with the giving of our best love and serving of Jesus, we will always need his grace, his love and his mercy. And I'm going to read the words of this song and after it I want us to actually sing it. And I just want you to just give yourself to God in it. Worship him from, you know, don't hold back, don't think, oh, but I'm sitting three rows down from them and what are they going to think? Just forget it. Just go all out for worshipping Jesus. So I'm going to read this um, song out to you and while I'm doing it the worship team are going to miss the cue and come and (laughs) let's stand as I read the words together it says this your grace is enough more than I need at your word I will believe I wait for you draw near again let your spirit make me new And I will fall at your feet, I will fall at your feet and I will worship you here. Your presence in me, Jesus, light the way by the power of your word. I am restored, I am redeemed by your spirit, I am free. And I will fall at your feet, I will fall at your feet and I will worship you here. Freely you gave it all for us, surrendered your life upon that cross. Great is the love poured out for all this is our God lifted on high from death to life forever our God is glorified servant and king rescued the world this is our God let's worship him to close